All right, good morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's so good to see you. We're going back to Romans chapter 7 this morning, Romans chapter 7. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, um, open up your apps, head over to Romans 7. If, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 943, page 943. We're going to be continuing our study in Romans chapter 7 while you're flipping over there. I um, wanted to let you guys know that our community groups are starting back up. Um, our community groups are an essential part of our, our model for doing life together, right? It, it's The gathering is really important. Opening God's Word is really important. Singing and worshiping together is really important. But life change happens best in small groups, right? If we really want to engage the truths of the Scripture and grow and to change, that happens best um, in relationship right? Face-to-face, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, and, and, uh, and at times forgiving and being forgiven. Um, Community is not always easy, uh, and it can be really messy, but it is God's chosen way to transform us. It is not optional in, uh, in our discipleship life. If we want to grow in Christ, we have to grow in community. It's the way God designed it. And so if you are not part of our community groups, if you've been here and, and you have joined us for a while, but you haven't yet jumped in, I would encourage you uh, to jump in. Join one of, our, one of our community groups. They meet on different nights of the week, uh, different areas of the region. And, uh, and so if you want to jump back in, send an email to info at trailheadonline.org, uh, or you can visit Connection Point, which is in our lobby and get some more information. All right, continuing now in Romans 7. One of the most striking um, things about Romans 7 is the brutal honesty with which Paul invites us into his experience. This is really one of the most striking and memorable passages in the New Testament. It is honest, it is visceral, uh, and it is painfully relatable. Um, It is amazing to see a leader open up and give us a peek into his own personal struggle like this. Uh, This is truly uncommon. He's sharing a story, I believe, so that we can be invited in to see our story in his. I believe he is leaning out in vulnerability so that we can find the courage to move in our own vulnerability back into a place that, um, or to a place that allows the spirit to do deep work in, in our hearts. Our theme for this chapter has been this idea of thresholds, right? We've been talking about this as we've gone through. A threshold is a critical space between two larger spaces. <laughs> not a place you want to camp out, not a place you want to hang out, but a critical transition point, right? And, and some thresholds in our lives are welcome and, and joyful. Uh, we move from one phase of life to another. We move from one level of maturity to the next, and, and there's no pain involved. It's pure joy. There are other thresholds that are very, very difficult to cross. There are certain thresholds in our lives that are going to feel like death because we don't want to let go what was on the previous side. We don't want to have to go through the change necessary because it's not simply a change of our circumstances or a change in our environment. It is a change in us. We must change to pass through that threshold into the new space, into the new phase of life, into the next stage of maturity. And this morning, we're going to be looking at how sometimes a threshold can really feel like a revolving door. Um, It feels like you just go over it and over it and over it and over it, and you spin in it, and you get so tired, and you're like, man, can't I just get to the other side? 
Um, but here's the thing with change, especially interior change, real change, maturing change. You can't just flip a switch and make it happen. You can't just decide, hey, I think I'll be more mature. Hey, I think I'll let go of all my resentments. Hey, I think I'll learn how to forgive. Hey, I, I think I'll, I'll stop pursuing these negative things in my life. Hey, I'll come up with, I'll just abandon all my coping mechanisms that I put in place to protect myself or to serve myself or to, it, it takes time. And sometimes you do have to camp out on the threshold. It's a miserable place to camp. But there's no other way. Because you can't go back. And you can't go forward until you've grown and matured and changed in the way that frees you to get to the other side. And when you're in that space, I'm, I'm just going to let you know, sometimes it feels like you're devolving. <laughs> like, like things are getting worse. Like especially as a believer, there are times when you're in that space and you're like, holy cow. I used to be so mature. I used to have joy in the Lord. I used to, I used to feel like, like things were great. And now I just feel like I'm a miserable Christian. I feel like I'm a miserable follower of Christ. I just, I've, I've lost my joy. I've lost my direction. I think I've even lost my motivation. Sometimes, sometimes it feels like I've even lost my faith. I'm in this spot. I don't even know if God exists. You start to wonder if you're broken. Or if the whole thing was a lie. So I want to tell you, and this is where we're going to be going this morning, those are the spaces where honestly it feels like you're devolving, it feels like you're backsliding, it feels like you're, you're, everything's coming apart, but the reality is those are the seasons of greatest growth. God is at work in those seasons doing things you could never do on your own. He's at work in the pain in ways you can't see and you will not recognize for a long, long time to come. But it is in those spaces where you grow because God will take you into this next phase. He will help you grow. And you need to realize the only way sometimes to discover God's strength is through the path of your own weakness. And that's a path we hate to walk. We don't like to discover our limitations. We don't like to discover uh, that we are at times our own worst enemy. We don't like to discover that the things we take pride in are in fact our shame. But it is often through those moments of tremendous revelation, which can be not only humbling but humiliating, can not only be difficult but often filled with shame, not only relationally challenging around us, but suddenly we're awakened to a whole new world of guilt as we realize that often we've been the source of the problem. We've been blaming others. We've been externalizing the things that have been going on in us. The only way to discover God's strength is through the path of your own weakness. All right, so last week, Paul invited us into a moment of clarity that he had in his life when the Spirit of God made a commandment come to life, right? The commandment was do not covet, he tells us, right? So do not covet. Uh, a commandment that honestly... Uh, is it should be like JV League, right? It feels like that's an easy one, right? Do not covet. Paul's like, yeah, I've known that since my youth. I don't want your house. Don't care about your house, right? I'm not after your, your Mustang, right? Not the car, the horse. They didn't have cars, but I'm not, I don't care about your stuff, your goods, your trinkets, you know? None of that matters to me, right? I don't measure myself by those things. He, he probably even looked down in some ways on the coveting of others, the materialism or whatever, but the Spirit brought the commandment to life in a way 
that it had never been before, and the Spirit used it to open a door in Paul's soul, and when the commandment came to life, he died. Um, The commandment showed him things about his basic motivations that both shocked him and shamed him, right? It wasn't that he suddenly started coveting his neighbor's cars or houses or goods or income or, or the other things like that. It said, I, I believe, I believe, based on not only this passage, but looking at, at how Paul reveals himself in other passages as well, that, that the commandment showed him things about his basic motivations that both shocked him and shamed him. He realized that his drive, what he took his pride in, was actually his shame that his competitiveness and his overachieving nature wasn't something to take pride in. It was actually a grasping insecurity of sin. It was his need to prove himself. It was his need to perform in such a way that he had a resume. He could slide across the table that would put others to shame and demand their respect. It was his way of establishing his own glory and competing with the glory of God. Now, what's interesting is we move into the next paragraph in this passage. This week, we move from past tense. So like in the last verse, Paul's telling us something God did in the past. You're going to see this week we're moving into the present tense. No longer is he going to say, I I died. He's going to say, I'm dying, (laughs) right? He's not going to say, God did this. He's going to say, this is happening. He moves from past tense to present tense. Christians are really, really good at past tense testimonies. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Those are our favorite. I really struggled. Man, I was a mess. I made bad choices. I failed. I sinned. But then God, right? We love confessing things that we no longer struggle with because in some ways, I don't know, that can become like a weird Christian boast. Like, yeah, one time I really overcame this horrible thing and and now I'm so much better, right? We love confessing things that we no longer struggle with, things that are past. But Paul invites us into a present struggle. Paul's not inviting us into something that is over and done, and he gets to now sing the praises of God's glory and quietly do the humble brag of, look how much I've grown. Paul is inviting us into his present struggle so that we can see our struggle in his. So let's take a look at our verses this morning. This is Romans 7. We're looking at verses 13 through 20. 13 through 20. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so let's walk through the passage. I just want to take you through the verses, and then I'll make some observations at the end and kind of apply it to us a little bit. Uh, Verse 13 starts with another rhetorical question. This has been Paul's pattern, and it's very similar to the question he asked in verse 7. And and this, this 
question both summarizes the point that he made in the last paragraph that we covered last week in our sermon, but also leads us into the, the present implications, right? If the law became the experience of death in me, is the law then evil? Is there something wrong with the law? Did that which is good then bring death to me? Is it its fault? And of course, the answer is by no means. He uses the same formula he uses previously, meg geneto, no way, not a chance, God forbid, right? A very, very strong negation. The law is good and holy and just. The law isn't at fault. It's sin's fault. And, and, and it, the law exposes sin so that sin might be seen as utterly sinful, right? So just to remind you, the law was never given to cure sin. That was never its intended function. It was never given to remove sin. That was never why it was given. It was given to expose sin by stirring it up and making it worse. That's the function of the law, and it served that function. So it is good and holy and just. It's not the problem. The problem is the evil heart that is trying to use that law because then it misuses it, right? A holy tool becomes an unholy weapon in the hands of somebody who is um, rebellious against God, right? So verse 14 then shifts the focus from the law to what the law has shown Paul about himself. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. Notice the transition of, tr of tense, I am of flesh, right? And we see that shifting from now, I'm not going to be talking about the law. I'm going to be talking about my experience a little bit. I'm going to talk about how it has affected me, right? And the central contrast that he lays out in this verse is that the law is spiritual and I am of flesh. Now, I don't want us to read into this like a, a Gnostic dualism. Um, so Gnosticism was an ancient Greek philosophy that taught that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good. Right? Plato used to kind of teach that, that the longing of the soul was ultimately to be freed from the confines of all things physical and material and be freed into the truly spiritual, right? As if somehow your body is evil, but your spirit inside of it is good and your spirit's just trying to get away from it. That, that is not the framework that Paul is working from. In fact, Gnosticism hadn't even been fully developed by the, when he wrote this. Um, it, what he is saying is, is that the law and the flesh operate on two different planes of moral reality, right? So the law is spiritual. It's good. It's holy. It's right. I'm not, <laughs> right? And, and here's the thing. Um, the law uh, is, is a perfect expression of God's holy and good nature. And if I were perfectly righteous, here's the thing. I would not feel threatened in the least by the law. The law wouldn't stir up anything evil in me because there'd be nothing evil in me to stir up. Now, the law would also bring me no benefit because the law would be useless to me. If I was truly spiritual, completely in line with the will and, and the perfect expression of the nature of God, I wouldn't need the law. The law would actually be useless to me. It would neither condemn me nor reward me. It would do nothing for me, okay? Um, but it is by its nature on a different plane that I am. If I was connected to God joyfully and humbly and submissively walking in dependence on God, um, there'd be no problem. But I'm not spiritual. I am of flesh. Now, he's not talking about the body. When Paul talks about being 
in the flesh or of flesh. This is his way of describing the sin that continues to exist in the physical reality of the believer. I've become a follower of Christ, but even though I've become a follower of Christ, I still have the flesh, the sin nature, which is the inheritance that I got my first father, right? The, the, the rebellion of, of the first Adam still exists within me. It is a restless, sinful rebellion against God. It is a desire to be independent from God instead of humbly dependent on God. It is a desire to prove my worth, not rest in His worth. It is a desire to provide for my own security instead of resting in His protection. It is a desire to ultimately pursue rest in whatever way I want, whatever seems most attractive to me, instead of, instead of actually resting in the presence and in the love of a good God and a good Savior. It is my way of establishing my significance through my achievements, my pursuits, my resume, instead of allowing my significance to flow from the fact that I am approved by God, and that's all the approval I need and all the significance I could ever ask for, right? It is a restless, rebellious urge to compete with God instead of rest in God. Instead of being content, being created in the image of God, I want to be like God. I want the power of God. I want the wisdom of God. I want the knowledge of God. I want, I want to, to be God. So it's not the body. It is that restless, impulse of rebellion against God. So Paul says, I am a flesh. The law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold under sin. Now, that's an interesting phrase uh, that has created quite a bit of conflict. In fact, this is one of the reasons commentators often differ. Like there are some commentators that say, look at this verse, and they say, he cannot be speaking of himself as a believer. He has to be speaking of the experience of an unbeliever. Or he has to be speaking of, of the experience of, of the nation of Israel trying to obey the law outside of the work of grace. He, he can't be talking about a believer. Why? Because he's already said, if you take a look back at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul said this, We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. How can I be simultaneously set free from sin and yet sold under sin? Some commentators would say, well, that, that can't exist, so therefore he has to be describing the experience of an unbeliever. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that's the proper conclusion. Uh, I don't think that fits the, the broader flow of the passage or what I know of, of how all of this works. I believe Paul is exploring the tension between our positional reality, and our practical experience as followers of Christ. Our positional reality and our practical experience. Let me explain that a little bit. Positionally. Positionally, I have been delivered from being in Adam, and I am now in Christ, right? To remind you of uh, the model that, that, um, that we put up, the Adam-Christ model that we developed in chapter 5 and showed in chapter 6. Do we not have it? It's cool. So, in the previous model, I've shown you we had two circles, one in Adam, one in Christ. And, uh, and in Adam uh, was, was sin, death, and law. 
And then in Christ was resurrection, um, righteousness and resurrection, uh, grace, righteousness and resurrection. When you believe in Christ, you are, boom, there we go. That was a pretty good memory. Uh, you are moved from being in Adam to being in Christ, right? So as soon as you believe in Christ, um, that inheritance you received from the first Adam is gone. You are now covered in the obedience of the last Adam, right? His rebellion is no longer held to your account. His obedience is because Jesus died under the weight of your rebellion and your sin, because he perfectly obeyed the law and earned its blessing, but then died under its curse, because he lived the life I should have lived as a perfect human, but then died the death I deserve to die in my place as my substitute, and then rose again, when I believe in him, he takes my sin and I get his, his obedience. I get his righteousness. I am positionally moved. And what that means, I mean, that's, that's not just a, a moving of pieces on the chessboard. It's profoundly more than just a legal decree. I am legally declared, when I believe in Jesus, I am justified. I am legally declared right before God. But more than that, I'm actually adopted into the family of God. When, when God the Father sees me, he sees the righteousness of his Son. Everything he delights in in Jesus, he sees in me and delights in it. Even though I am not yet like Christ, I am treated like Christ. Even though there is a huge gap between who I am and who I've been declared to be, I am treated as I have been declared to be. Because it is only by God's sovereignty that I will become what I've been declared to be. And it's as soon as Christ was raised from the dead... And I believed in him, his resurrection became mine. The same force that raised Jesus from the dead will transform me. Death couldn't hold Christ in the grave, and my sin cannot keep me from becoming like Christ. It is absolutely guaranteed by the saving work that Jesus performed. Positionally, I am in Christ. Experientially, there's still a huge gap between who I've been declared to be and who I actually am. Y'all following me? Like, like, I've been declared everything good in Christ. I am not experiencing everything good in Christ, right? I have received uh, everything in Christ. I'm only experiencing a fraction of what have I received. I, I, I have been declared to, in a sense, be covered in Christ, and yet there is so little in me that is like Christ, right? There's a huge gap between my position and my experience. And so... I believe Paul is pushing in to this tension, right? That, that my position will become my experience, but not without pain. Because I still carry within me the flesh. This restless, rebellious need to be independent from God, right? This disordered desire that flows from my rebellion. Now, I want to make it clear, we get into trouble when we don't understand the difference between our justification and the process of sanctification, right? I, I am secure in Christ, not, not because I perform for Christ, but because Christ performed for me. I am justified because Jesus died and rose again, not because I've done anything to take hold of it. I have simply received that gift by faith. He initiated toward me in love and I responded in trust, right? I have simply received a gift, and in receiving that gift, I have been justified. Now, there's a huge gap now between who I am 
and who I've been declared to be, but my security isn't threatened by that gap. My security rests in my justification. And it is my justification that begins the process of my sanctification, the process by which I am being set apart and changed into the image of my Savior. God is at work in me to change me. He loves me exactly as I am, but He loves me too much to leave me as I am. So He will change me. Sometimes kicking and screaming. Sometimes I will fight it. Sometimes I will resist it. Sometimes I'll mistrust it. Sometimes I will fear it. But God will not be deterred. He will have His glory in me. He will change me. I am not more powerful than Him. So I have been declared right. And as a result, I am being treated as if I were right, even though I'm often wrong. I'm not only accepted, I am adopted into the family of God. I am crowned as a son of God in the kingdom of Christ, and I am filled with the Spirit. The gap between who I am positionally and who I, ex- I am in my experiences is huge. And this is why we need sanctification, the process by which God is transforming us and changing us so that we aren't just in Christ, but we become more and more like Christ. And sanctification is a messy process, y'all. It is not clean. It is not linear. It is not obey these three rules and get this result. Take these five steps and, and here's a life hack that leads you into, you know, like it, 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 we, want, we want the, uh, the ladders, but we, we don't want the shoots, right? The game where you're just going up and down and up and down. We want the nice and easy steps to help us just kind of work our way. And it's just not the way it works because what has to change is something we don't know how to change. There are things that are God's going to change in us. We don't want them to change because we don't know how bad they are yet. There are things in us we, we love and we think are actually our strengths, which are actually our weakness. And we're going to fight to keep those things. We're going to fight against God and His work to set us free because we're afraid to let go of the very things He wants to release us from. We think they protect us when they enslave us. And this is why I remind you all the time that God's not simply focused on changing our behavior. He's he's going after the root of the behavior. He wants to change our hearts. He wants to transform our behavior from the inside out, not simply conform our behavior from the outside in. He isn't focused on the behavior. He's focused on the restless rebellion that drives us away from his love. So when Paul says that he is a flesh sold under sin, he is talking about his practical experience, not his positional reality. And having established that, he reveals to us that this leads to a very, very painful struggle of being both positionally in Christ and practically in a battle to bring his desires in line with his position. And this tension is bewildering and frustrating. Take a look at verses 15 through 17. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You ever been there? In that internal battle within yourself where 
you do the very thing you hate? Sometimes you watch yourself do it. Sometimes you catch yourself doing it after you've already done it. You're like, what? how did I get here again? Why did I say that? Why did I react that way? Why did I so, why did I so impulsively lie when I felt like I was caught in something that I thought was going to bring me shame? I mean, silly things. Like, hey, did you take out the trash? Oh, yeah, 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 I took out the trash. I didn't take out the trash. But I'll do it before you get home. Right? What, 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 what is that impulse? Why do I do the very things I hate? And how is that related to this final statement? Therefore, it is no longer I who do it. All right, so he, he finds in this, first of all, confirmation that the law is good, right? If, if the law condemns my behavior, I'm actually agreeing that the law is good. The law actually has the authority to condemn my behavior. It's an expression of something that is good, righteous, holy, and just, right? Because if I feel condemned by it, I agree that I should be living up to it. But secondly, it leads to this conclusion that it's no longer I who do it, right? But, but something in me, right? He's not, now I want you to catch this. He's not saying that he's not culpable for his behavior, that he's not responsible for his choices. He's saying that he's not alone in the struggle. There's another force at work in him. In fact, there are forces at work in him, deep forces, which his conscious self does not control. His rational mind responds and reacts, but is not in control. He's not excusing himself for sinful choices, saying he's helpless. He's exposing the conflict in him as he struggles with sinful impulses. He's saying, I am responsible, but I, my rational mind, am not fully in control. I want, you to remind, I want to remind you of the illustration I gave you last week from Jonathan Haidt's um, book, The Righteous Mind, of the elephant and the rider. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a researcher of moral behavior, looking specifically at psychology, sociology, and even biology, the study of brain chemistry. He has looked at how we make for moral formulations, um, what parts of the brain fire first, which parts fire second, how do, and why. Why are we moral beings? And he came up with this metaphor to describe it, this idea that, that um, our rational mind is the rider on top of an irrational elephant. There is an elephant that ultimately curves toward what it finds attractive and pulls away from what it finds unattractive, pulls toward what it thinks will give it life, pulls away from what it thinks it will give it harm, um, pulls toward what it what thinks will be pleasurable and pulls away from what is disgusting. And the rider will imperceptibly, in fact, in, in fractions of a second, pick up the direction the elephant is already going and immediately begin rationalizing, explaining, and justifying in a moral sense why that's the direction we're going to go. We are not primarily rational beings. We are primarily feeling beings. We are driven by our desires, right? What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's one of the, one of the summaries of quotes from Thomas Cranmer's Anthropology in your bulletin. Um, but the idea here is that, that we feel it first and we think it second, right? There was a moment where the Lord turned on the light for Paul, using the commandment, you shall not covet, and Paul got a glimpse of the elephant. <laughs> not just his rational thinking about the elephant, not just his justification of his choices, not just the constructs he created to justify himself and condemn others, but he actually got a glimpse of the elephant itself. The law showed him something in his basic motivations. 
that he didn't want to see. It revealed to him a deep well of envy, ambition, competition, and self-glory that drove what he thought was his glory and now is revealed as his shame. And Paul spins in the complexity of that mess between the desire and the choice, the space between his motives and his behavior. I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. It's me, but it's not me. I'm, I feel like I'm in control, but I'm not in control. The flesh that rebellious, restless part of me that wants to be independent from God hijacks my desires and disorders them, and I find myself acting like a slave to my worldliness. I'm going to remind you, worldliness is that system by which we try to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. It's the systems we create individually and corporately to try to find in this world what only the creator of this world can give, right? And, and, and he is a slave to this worldliness because his, his flesh is leading the elephant of desire, right? He's trying to get the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, whether he's trying to earn it or steal it, right? Sometimes we try to earn the fullness of life through our obedience and good works. Sometimes we try to steal it by breaking the law and breaking the taboos and doing the things we're not supposed to do. But both of those are our worldly attempts to dethrone God, whether through our good works through bad motivations or our bad works through the attempts to get good things through forbidden paths, right? We, 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 try, to, we try to earn it or we try to steal it. Verses 18 through 20, Paul reiterates these points, right? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, specifically that is in my flesh. He's not saying there's nothing because the Spirit of God's in him. So he's not saying the Spirit of God isn't good. He's saying there's nothing good that dwells in me, specifically in my flesh, in that broken, rebellious part of me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you feel the frustration of this? You ever been there? I mean, Romans 7, man. Like, that is raw. And I can't tell you how many times I've come to Romans 7 just to have Paul commiserate with me. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. I'm so sick of myself. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. As a believer, I have conflicting desires. People will tell you, man, if you come to Jesus, everything will be good. You want peace, joy, and a nice life? Follow Jesus. Yeah, that's not what Paul says. You want to have inner conflict and turmoil? Follow Jesus. You want to set a war loose in your soul? Follow Jesus. Because when you invite the Spirit of God into the mess that is your heart, He's going to go about the business of cleaning it. And you are not going to be passive in that process. And don't think you're the good guy that's going to partner with God in it. You're not. The part of you that he has to clean up is the part of you you love and think you need to protect from God, and you will go to war with God to protect it. As a believer, we have conflicting desires. Or another way of putting it is I'm riding this elephant, and it's running rampant. And I've realized that I'm not leading it. I'm simply following it. I'm not in control. But there are two masters now that claim ownership. 
the flesh and the spirit. Now, Paul hasn't mentioned the spirit yet. We're going to get into that next week in the final section of this chapter. But we're not alone in this. Praise God. Now, I want you to catch, once again, he's not, he's not excusing sin. He's explaining the struggle, right? When he says, it's no longer I who do it, he's, he's not saying, I'm not responsible. He's saying, there's a deeper force at work here that I'm not in control of, okay? All right, let me give you some applications from this. Next week, by the way, we get to the culmination of the chapter. If you've caught the last couple, you need to come back next week because the good news is coming, okay? Um, but let's make a few applications from this specific section. First, you need to see that this is the normal Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. And some of you are all like, that's not good news, Steve. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it actually is good news because God hasn't abandoned you and left you to your insanity. But it does mean it's going to be hard. You are going to struggle in the Christian life. You are not going to be able to do what God asks you to do. You're not going to be able to be what God asks you to be. It's not in your power. And not only are you not going to be able to do it because you fail, you're going to fight against it because you're a rebel. You are going to keep trying to establish your own glory. You're going to keep trying to establish your own security. You're going to keep trying to make yourself worthy of love. You're going to keep trying to find rest in things that don't give it. Because there is a restlessness, a restless rebellion in your heart that needs to be put to death. And that restless rebellion isn't something outside of you, it is something in you, and it's not something you hate, it is something you love, which is why you will fight so hard to protect it, until you actually come to see it for what it is and allow the Spirit of God to free you from it. This struggle is real. Paul is writing in the present tense. Not because as he's writing Romans, this is his present struggle, but because this is his present struggle as a follower of Christ. This is what it means to go through sanctification. This is the process by which we grow. This is the ongoing struggle of the spiritual life. Circumstances change, details change, but the struggle does not. And I'm going to let you all know, you don't get out of Romans 7. You don't graduate out of Romans 7, not in this life, because there's no point in this life at which you no longer have the flesh. Now, you will be able to simultaneously experience Romans 8. We'll get into that. You'll simultaneously be able to experience resurrection while you're also dealing with the implications of your rebellion and death, but, but the struggle itself there are things about you you'll never be able to change in this lifetime. There are besetting sins that you have in your life that you'll have to learn how not to act on, but the desires will never go away. God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And God has a purpose even in this so that we can learn to hate our sin so that we can learn to love His grace, so we can learn to hate our independence from God and learn to love humble dependence on Him. Romans 7 is the threshold between Romans 6 and Romans 8. 
In Romans 6, we saw the, it's a glorious chapter about what is positionally true. Who I am in Christ. I am dead to sin and I am free in Christ. It is absolutely true. Romans 8 is a glorious chapter about what is experientially true. That I take joy in suffering. That I am, I am being conformed in the very image of Christ. That, that I can even go as a lamb to the slaughter. But do it with boldness and joy because of my security in Christ. But the transition between what is positionally true and what is experientially true is a very painful struggle. For God is at work putting to death in me what needs to die. So listen to me. If you're struggling, you're not broken. If you're having a hard time living the Christian life, you're not broken. And, and, and if you're finding yourself struggling more right now than you did last week, it doesn't mean that, it, that, that suddenly you're less mature, that suddenly you've, you've slidden down the hill and, oh my goodness, I've lost so much ground. It could very simply be that the Spirit of God has shown you more of what was always there for the purpose of setting you more free. You're not broken. Sometimes it feels like you're taking one step forward and then sliding down 20. But listen, God doesn't measure your progress on a moral improvement scale. That's not how God measures your progress in the spiritual life. Um, he's not giving you a grade. He's not measuring at all. He's working to free you from your need to earn or steal so that you can love, so that you can respond to his love freely and in response learn to love in return. God's not measuring you, he's loving you. And he's setting you free from the treadmill of self-improvement. And we often grow the most when we feel like we're succeeding the least. Secondly, we need to avoid two specific temptations in this process. We need to avoid two specific temptations in this process. There are two temptations that are presented in this chapter. One is to turn back to the principles of the law. We find ourselves struggling with sin that we don't understand. We find ourselves struggling with impulses that we don't like. We find that there are things in us that, that, that we can't control. And so what do we do? We go back to the principles of the law. I'll beat myself up for what is bad. I'll set a self-improvement process, uh, project in place so that I can improve what is wrong and I can get back to the hard work of fixing myself. I will obey my way. I will, I, will, I, will, I will willpower my way into spiritual growth. I will double down on my self-improvement projects and I will work for God. I will know more and I will do more. Which always leads, by the way, to pretending and performing. Always. Because we're measuring when God doesn't. And we're always going to try to compare ourselves to something. And when we're comparing ourselves to something, we always have a need to look better than we actually are. We will invariably begin the process of pretending and performing in our souls. And it will end up crushing us in shame. Or worse, you'll actually get good at the performance and think you've got it. You know, there are, I believe, uh, this is one of the, one of the traps, I believe, um, in Christianity. Christianity. 
um, I've met older believers who have come to me and they're like, man, I've, I've, been, I've been a believer for 40 years. I'm like, that's great. And then as I interact with them, I see that, that they haven't grown in humility. They're very, very proud of where they are, of their accomplishments in life, and they think if people want to succeed in life, they should just be like them. Follow my work ethic, follow my morality, follow my rules, and you will be mature like me. You will grow in Christ. And what I've discovered is that they're not a 40-year-old Christian. They're a one-year-old Christian who has celebrated their one-year anniversary 40 times. They've stopped growing because they've stopped struggling. They shut it down. And instead of actually dealing with an increased uh, revelation of sin in their lives, they've just shut it down through willpower and, and, and self-improvement and moral behavior and, 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 they're, and they're puffed up in pride and they're harboring their shame. That's one temptation, to turn back to the principles of the law that will either crush you in shame or crush you with pride. The second temptation is to get out of the struggle by just giving in to the disordered desires. Some of you think, well, you know, it's more important for me to be authentic than moralistic. So if I feel it, I should just do it. If I'm feeling it, I'm already guilty of it, so I might as well do it because that's what I authentically need to do to be real, right? I want it, so I'll do it. And God will either change me and change my desires or he'll give me grace to forgive me. Which, by the way, is exactly what Paul is saying, God forbids, right? Should we abuse grace because grace increases where sin abounds? May it never be. God forbid. May genito. Y'all, why would you who have been freed from sin go back to the slavery? But Steve, you just told me I'm going to keep on sinning. You just told me. I did. I did. Because there's a part of you that's insane and God wants to kill it so that you can be sane. Don't go back to the asylum. Don't try to escape the discomfort of God's growing you in grace by giving in to your sin and then using grace as an excuse to cover your choice. Trying to get to spiritual growth by keeping the law will make you a moral monster driven by hidden shame and covered in foolish pride. Trying to get there by breaking the law is an abuse of grace and a treason against sanity. It's driven by disordered desires, and those disordered desires will end up covering you in shame and leading you to disappointment every single time. So we need to avoid the temptation of either trying to power up over our sin or giving in to our sin. We need to learn to keep wrestling with grace, which leads to the final point. We need to push into God's love. We don't overcome our sin through an exertion of our willpower, and we don't become more authentic by giving in to the disordered desires. We need to push into the love of God so we can learn to trust God and respond to God's love because that's what reorders our disordered desires, right? We, don't, we shouldn't be running from the discomfort. Romans 7 is a really, really uncomfortable place to be. It's a threshold that is really painful to be in. Nobody wants to be in Romans 7, right? And everything in us, man, we hate discomfort. We, we hate it, but don't flinch. 
from the shame to cover yourself with the fig leaves of moral performance or drug yourself with the indulgence of sinful desires. Don't try to satiate the discomfort by giving yourself over to your disordered desires and self-destruction. The Spirit is walking with you and is calling you to walk with Him, to respond to His love in the middle of the mess. And that's where we're going next week. You can't control the elephant, but God can. And He'll do it through grace not through your exertion of your willpower or your effort or the work of the flesh. You'll get there by being loved, not by doing works. You will get there by resting in grace, not by in controlling your environment. You will get there by walking in the Spirit, not through the works of the flesh. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we will share communion and, uh, and sing. Father, we thank you that... Um, your plan, even though we don't always love it, is so good. That you have from the beginning created us to be in your image, which means that you want us to love and respond to love. And for us to respond to love requires us to have, a, in a sense, a will that responds to love because the desires have been oriented to it. Lord, we thank you that, that you work even through our sin, even through our brokenness to produce more of what you love. We thank you, Lord, that even, there are, even though there are times we look at ourselves and we're sick of ourselves, even though there are times we look at ourselves and we feel so unlovable, you still tell us how profoundly you love us. And it's that love, that love that actually sets us free. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray for myself, Lord. There are thresholds in our lives we don't want to cross. There are things we're struggling with we don't want to deal with. There are things that we need to see about ourselves that we're terrified to see. Spirit, will you come and comfort our hearts where we need comfort, challenge our hearts where we need to be challenged. Awaken us, Lord to the broken ways we try to do life so that we can bring those areas to you so that you can meet us in grace and set us free. We pray all this through the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.